0: So on the front of your bulletin, and by the way, I think a lot of people love that song, This Is My Father's World. My uh, spiritual mentor in Springfield, Ohio, that was one of, probably his favorite song. There were two that were his go-tos, uh, but that was certainly one of his favorites, uh, This Is My Father's World. That's where I really learned or grew to appreciate that particular song. I also, I have my own memories of that song, probably the smallest church I ever preached to, was a tiny little church. I'm not even sure where it where it was exactly. I know it was up uh I think Carthage, but I don't think it was in Carthage. It was a tiny little church. Probably smaller than half of like this building on this side for the where the people worshipped. And they didn't have air conditioning and I was there in the summer, so they had the windows open and they sang this is my father's world. And and it was right on the edge of some cornfields. So probably as close as the sidewalk is outside the windows where the corn started, and they sang that song, and you could just, or at least my sense was, they appreciated it for what it was. It was very meaningful to them, and I already had found it a meaningful song. So if you've read the Old Testament in the past week, this will you'll be in a good place for this morning. Uh, if you haven't read the Old Testament in the past week, then um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> On the front of your bulletin, I'll start this way. We're in Isaiah chapter 60. Um, The last three weeks we've been in uh, the Old Testament book of Haggai. Uh, Our normal series is in Isaiah. We've done chapters, our goal is to do chapter 40 through 66. We're up to chapter 60. I initially thought I could do it in one week, but it's going to take two. But considering how long a chapter it is, uh, I'm I'm, uh, still pretty pleased uh, that in two weeks that's quite an accomplishment to do the entire chapter. But the chapter starts off with the way it's rendered in looks like the old King James but I guess I'm not sure of that it might be the new American standard an older edition. It says arise shine for thy light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, I'm kind of curious this is going to be much more interactive for lots of different reasons uh, although it won't be interactive if nobody interacts but I'm curious what comes to your mind when you see that first verse as it's printed in the bulletin. What, what memory does it conjure up or what theme, what lesson? Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Does that, like, just like this is my father's world conjures up certain memories, does this verse conjure up anything in particular, something stand out to you? The coming of Christ, okay, that in reference to the Messiah, in reference to the Messiah. Somebody else? Rich? Oh, really? Like this particular, so to be clear, was this a verse actually that was instrumental in your coming to the Lord, or now that you're a Christian, you look back and it's meaningful? An an initial takeaway, because the application is going to be a little bit further removed than normal this week, but the initial takeaway is this is not a call for people to awaken themselves. It is a call to arise and shine because the light has come. So the only reason why these people in any sense can arise, the only reason why these people in any sense can shine is because the The shining, the glory of God has been shown upon them. Christians in the church do not shine by themselves. But if you're a Christian and if we're a church, we are certainly meant to shine. We are reflecting or passing on a glory which is not our own. We arise and shine because this light has shown. The glory of the Lord has risen upon us. It's interesting that uh, Isaiah is a prophet who prophesied over many decades, 40 years, maybe even longer. I'll just throw out a, a figure that I've used up to this point, call him about 700 B.C. So 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was a prophet. Haggai, where we've been the last three weeks, is a prophet that prophesied about 520 B.C. So there's about 180 years from when Isaiah was a prophet to when Haggai was a prophet. Isaiah's ministry was very long, 40 plus years. Haggai's ministry was four months, separated by 180 years. And yet both harmonize so beautifully in that we're in Isaiah chapter 60, and it's hard not to see what Haggai also deems important, that And I think part of that is because both those prophets, one 700 years before Christ, the second 520 years before Christ, both of those prophets are anticipating and speaking of the one who will come after. As uh, Rick said, they're speaking of the Messiah who is the glory of God made manifest. So they're both looking to some of the, the same ultimate result, the same wonderful culmination, whether that was 520 years earlier or whether it was 700 years earlier, or whether it was back in Abraham's day, uh, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, they're all anticipating and looking forward to the same arising, this same wonderful shining. And so because of that, because of this common thread, it shouldn't be surprising that there's similarities between what Haggai writes and what Isaiah writes. So what I'm going to do is i want to briefly rehearse Haggai because it will help us to understand Isaiah chapter 60. In the book, The Minor Prophet of Haggai, and if, if you want to turn in your Bible, uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 791. 791 in a pew Bible. Haggai, in four months, gives four messages. We've already talked about those. I don't want to belabor the point. Uh, but I do want to rehearse the point. Tony's here. He's up from, uh, it's Knoxville, Tennessee. He's up from Knoxville. He used to live across the field. We, his, the family stories, the church family and his family stories. It's just a beautiful, how they've all intermerged and come together. So it's always good to see Tony. So we'll bring Tony up to speed. Four messages in four months. The first message was a rebuke. Haggai rebuked the, the people living in Jerusalem because they had not tended to building rebuilding the temple of the Lord. Uh, the foundation was roughly laid, but because of opposition, they quickly gave up. Uh, they quickly abandoned that effort, and it had lain dormant for 16 years. I think it was 16 years. It might have been 18. I think it was 16 years. And so Haggai, uh, his first message is, Why are you so indifferent and apathetic about rebuilding the Lord's house? You need to do this. And the people respond with obedience in Haggai chapter 1. So then the second message, beginning Haggai chapter 2, is a message of encouragement. It's wonderful that they've started rebuilding the temple, but it's not going to be easy. And they will meet with opposition, and they will meet with hardship, and it will be a little bit discouraging. And so the second message is a message of encouragement, and this is what we're going to spend uh, some time revisiting again this morning in Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. The Lord makes this promise through the prophet. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's an encouraging message. It doesn't look very impressive as they rebuild this second temple. But the Lord promises, I'm going to fill this house with glory. And in fact, the latter glory will be better than the former glory. Is he comparing the latter glory of this temple with Solomon's temple? Or is he comparing the latter glory of this temple with the glory that it currently has as they're rebuilding it? And there are good Bible scholars that argue for both. And there may be one right answer, but I'm content to say that both can be true. And maybe Haggai has both in mind. The latter glory of this house will be greater they won't see it, the ones that are rebuilding, but they will, uh, it will be greater someday because Christ will adorn this temple. It will be greater because Herod will adorn this temple. It will be greater because of the enhancements that come after they die, and it will be greater not only than what they see before them, but it will also be greater than Solomon's temple. I think all those things are true. Trying to teach this morning, I keep rearranging my notes and adding side script and And I feel like it's one of those situations where you're trying to wrap your arms around some sort of a humongous tree trunk, and it's impossible to do. It's just impossible. So I'm not even exactly sure where this is going to go, but I'm pretty sure I need my whiteboard at some point. Uh, So I'm going to pull this out, and you'll see why I want to try to use that in a little bit. It's kind of like I asked Cindy about, what was the movie where they had all these levels and and you got further and further down into people's consciousness, and it was the movie Inception, which I've only seen once, and I don't do well with that kind of stuff. Um, Most most things that I read or things that I think I understand have to be very plain and very obvious. And when, when you start going down past about the first level, I'm probably lost. I don't do well with poetry unless it's upfront poetry and it's pretty clear. But when there's a lot of nuance to poetry... It's lost on me. So I'm practically lost to try to teach you, which doesn't bode well for where you're going to be. But again, if you've read the Old Testament this last week, you may do fine. <laughs> the third message of Haggai, after a message of encouragement, is a message of invitation. That's how I characterize it. Because twice in the second message, uh, the Lord says, consider from this day onward. In other words, he's telling the people, now here you are, you've been challenged with obedience, you found it hard, but consider from this day onward, what is it going to be like moving forward? Are you going to continue to hedge your bets? Are you going to continue to be lackluster in your obedience? Are you going to try to do just enough to get by, or are you all in on this project? Consider from this day on, what's it going to look like? The seed is no longer in the bin. It's no longer in the barn. You've now planted that seed. And what kind of harvest you get is going to depend on how much faith, whether you walk by faith now or not. The fourth message of Haggai is right at the very end. It's a gracious pledge. Uh, The last part of verse 23 reads, I have chosen you, speaking to Zerubbabel, the governor, who is also in the kingly line of David, I have chosen you, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord is making a pledge after giving this invitation. I am not done with David. I made certain promises to David. I entered into covenant with David. And you, Zerubbabel, are going to carry on that promise. Because what I promised the line of David is going to be fulfilled in your line, Zerubbabel. Ultimately fulfilled when Jesus uh, was born, when he came. Now, in Isaiah, go back to Isaiah chapter 60, I'll give you just a couple points of context before we move forward. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 58, we see that Israel, or Judah, Jerusalem has a sin problem. This sin problem is not superficial, it's all the way down to the depths of their heart. So, Judah has a sin problem. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They've got a sin problem, but it's very much a religious sin problem. They're still gathering at the temple. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still offering incense. I love um, the way Tim Keller describes, uh, goes through, the, pro- goes through the, the prodigal son story. You've got these, these two children. One lives a licentious lifestyle. The other lives a very moral lifestyle. Both restrained from the father. And I'm kind of teasing Lori because she's supposed to read that book. You lost it. Uh, Tim Keller says that some people need to repent of their sin, some people need to repent of their righteousness. I think that's that was, when I first read that in Tim Keller's book, that was such a fascinating thought. I've, been, I've grown up in church. I, w- I was baptized as an infant. I was baptized as a believer. So I've got two in my book. You know, I, I, I went to the church where, where if you kept perfect attendance through Sunday school, I think it was perfect attendance, maybe it was just you completed Sunday school. Every year, you got another little rung on your pin. And you'd get, you'd get this one Lutheran pin, and then all these little rungs of what a great Sunday school teacher you were. I had to learn to repent of my righteousness. God isn't impressed with my perfect attendance in Sunday school. He isn't impressed with what I give. Uh, whether it's financial, whether it's my time, whether it's my effort. If, if I think what I do is earning God's favor, you've got to repent of your righteousness as well as your sin. The problem in Isaiah 58, you've got a religious people that think they're earning God's favor and God finds it sickening. So Isaiah chapter 59 we find out that Judah, or Jerusalem, cannot solve her own problem. It reads like this, chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Judah thinks they're doing all the right things. They're worshiping in the temple. They're following a lot of the regulations regarding priestly, what you're supposed to do, and when and how. And they're like, but God is unresponsive. God just doesn't care. And God answers by saying, the problem isn't me, the problem is you. You can't solve your sin problem. And then a very remarkable thing happens when Israel, Judah, is confronted with their sin. They confess it, which is unusual. Because most of the Bible, beginning with Adam and Eve, most of the Bible, we rationalize our sin, we deny our sin, we downplay our sin. We find all manner of ways to deal with our guilt besides just confess it and say, you know what, that's right. So they confess their sin in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah 59, verse 9. The people say, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. They confess this what God is how God has assessed our character and our motivations and our thoughts is exactly right. We are miserable sinners through and through. and so God then responds at the end of chapter fifty nine He counters with his solution to their sin problem isaiah 59 The second part of verse 15 is actually where it transitions. So the second part of 15 says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as, in, as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render, render uh, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the, did I skip a line? He will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he, will, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And then verse 20, such an important verse. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. Out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord's own arm works salvation. And that picture of salvation is very different from what I read in Isaiah chapter 53. Because the Lord's salvation in Isaiah chapter 53 required a servant who suffered, who was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, who died as among thieves who died as among criminals and was laid in a burrowed tomb. And the wrath of God settled upon him as he died on the cross. That was the Lord working salvation in 53. But in 59, it's very much different. It's very much a conqueror. It's very much like uh, somebody who who, uh, has all the power and conquers in a way not via the cross. And both are true. Both are true. Isaiah 53 was fulfilled when Christ came the first time. Isaiah chapter 59 will be fulfilled when Christ comes back the second time. Both are true. So now, we're at Isaiah chapter 60, and the question will be, uh, maybe the answer will be, and then we'll phrase it into a question. Beginning with Isaiah chapter 60, we see the results of the Lord working salvation for himself what kind of results were produced or the what's the effect of the lord working salvation for himself we'll see it in chapter 60 we'll see it in 61 we'll see it in 62 we'll see it a little bit into chapter 63 here's the result of the lord saying there's no one else that can do this i'm going to do it myself with what result and then we'll ask the question, we want, to, we want to pick out the results of chapter 60, and I want big picture results because we can read the, everything in the chapter is a result. But I kind of want to categorize it. Like, in a big picture, what's the result of the Lord working salvation for himself? That's what we want to accomplish. And I want to ask the question, are we living in Isaiah chapter 60? Are we part of the result of Isaiah chapter 60? So let me read chapter 60 and, and as I do this, I've read a lot of books this week, a lot of commentaries on, on Isaiah chapter 60 and a lot of times people are very quick to say uh, here's what it means to us, we're the church, uh, we're, we're part of an expression of, of Christ's larger church, we're a local expression of Christ's larger church. And they're very quick to say, I look at Isaiah chapter 60 and I see that's all about the church. It's about the church's victory. It's about how the church has brought in all manner of uh, nation, tribe, tongue, and language are brought into the church right out of Isaiah chapter 60. But what I want us to do is I want us to start simple. I think simple is the best way to start, even though we, on your own, to some extent, you may want to get deeper and deeper into this, another layer of inception. But I want to start with, when Isaiah gave this message to people living in Jerusalem, how did they take it? That's where I want to start. What did they see as the result? They didn't say, oh, I think one day there's going to be a church. I don't think they understood that. What did they see as the result of the Lord working salvation for himself? Now let me read Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord, all the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebeoth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, the pine. To beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall, no more, uh, your, the sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your glory will be, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So, I'm going to say there are five levels, five promises, five effects of the Lord working salvation for himself, five categories. One is clearly the most important category. It's not necessarily the most mentioned, but it's clearly the most important answer, the most important effect of the Lord working salvation for himself. Who wants to venture a guess as to the effects of the Lord working salvation for himself? You're an Israelite. You heard Isaiah preach this message. Uh, you went back to your town and somebody in town said, well, what did Isaiah say? And you would say, Isaiah's message was very encouraging. This is a good message, not a bad message. Well, what made it encouraging? What, how is the Lord, what is he promising? How is he encouraging his people? What is good about this message? What do you see? That's, that's good, and that's very interesting. That's number two. Uh, but you've used a pronoun, and in Sunday school, uh, Terry said when you use a pronoun, I'm not sure what noun it's referring to. So when, it's, when, she, when Eve says they are going to prosper, who, who is the they? And your answer is almost certainly wrong. What is interesting is how many times you've got this uh, second-person pronoun, you. So it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness uh, the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your glory, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So you've got this pronoun you your. It's used all the way through the chapter, and then you've also got say uh, look at verse four. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hips, so that you has sons and daughters brought to you who is the you and who are the sons and daughters here's the answer that you in every case honestly I'm pretty sure it's every case there's so many verses and I probably looked up I look I mean I didn't do it all in one fell swoop every but I'm going to say every time the word you is used it is a singular feminine you And what that means, and I can't find any Bible scholar that disagrees with this, and many of them them advance that, the you refers to Jerusalem. So that one commentator says, this is Jerusalem's song. It's the song of Jerusalem. The you is Jerusalem. Who are the sons and daughters brought to you, Jerusalem? The Israelites. The Jews, both men and women. Sons and daughters are brought to you, Jerusalem. So we have a great effect. Number two, you've got Jerusalem glorified slash exalted. We've kind of answered number three because sons and daughters are brought to Jerusalem. And so number three is... Salvation to the Jews. In Good News Club, we recite Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, and then chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And we talk about to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So Jerusalem is is glorified and exalted. Salvation extends to the Jews. Those are two big effects. In Isaiah chapter 60, there's at least three others. The most important of which you haven't got yet. What else do you see? Salvation to the Gentiles. You've got salvation to the Gentiles, You've got of the Gentiles which is uh, uh, It's in verse uh, 6 and 7 at least. Verse 6 says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, Jerusalem. And the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They... Shall bring golden frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the lord you 've got Gentiles bringing golden frankincense you 've got Gentiles bringing uh, their wares, their camels to jerusalem and and they 're singing the good news, the praises of the lord that 's essentially the word gospel in the Old Testament. If I were to show you other uses of it in the old testament uh, I mean one of them In fact, one of them is in chapter 61, I believe. Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's a reference to Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is going to bring the gospel to the poor. Guess what? The Gentiles are doing it too. The Gentiles are coming to Jerusalem and they're singing praises to God's gospel. So another effect is that Salvation comes to the Gentiles. Salvation comes to the Gentiles. Two left, the most important of which you haven't got yet. I like to kind of rub that in. Rick? Um, which is true, and we're going to talk more about that next week, but but that has, is in reference to Jerusalem. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to try to address next week, and you will find it unsatisfying unless you land where I land, what you're going to find unsatisfying is uh, I'm not... A, as the Lord makes all these promises, as the Lord paints this beautiful picture of the effect of him working salvation, how much of it is meant to be taken literally and how much is it meant to be taken figuratively? And, and what's the interplay between them? I mean, some passages clearly uh, are, are figurative language. I mean, I think there was... Um, when it talks about... Nursing at, uh, nursing at king's breasts. I mean, that's figurative language. That's not literal language. So there's a mixture of figurative and literal in understanding Isaiah chapter 60. We've got to, we've got to address that. Uh, how literal is the city or how not literal is the city? Or is it both? Uh, I want to address that on some level, and I may be wrong, and I'm a little bit unsatisfied, but I'm going to give it the best shot I can. It'll be more next week than this week. So you're right, there is this eternal aspect of what you're seeing at the end of the chapter. In fact, it's a fascinating, and, it, and because there's so many different ways we could go with this. Um, let, me, let me pick up on what Rick mentioned. Clearly, in Isaiah chapter 60, this is, on some level, it's very forward-looking. In other words, what Isaiah sees in, a, in chapter 60 didn't just happen... When the Jews left Babylon where they were taken in exile and they came back to the promised land and there was a great celebration. But I don't think Isaiah chapter 60, can, you can limit that to them coming back from Babylon. The picture is bigger than that. It's bigger than that. The picture is so big, it is so final, it is so complete. I keep, I, I've talked several times about the word shalom or peace, which means completion, fulfillment. All of God's promises come to fruition, and you'll never have this problem ever again. Well, we've still got a sin problem. So it wasn't fulfilled by the Jews coming back from Babylon. Look at the language in verses 17 to 22. It reads, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. That's a promise. No word of violence. You're going to turn on the news. If you're looking for a bad story, if you're looking for a story that's going to divide people, if you're looking for a story that what's there, you're not going to find it. There is no bad news. No violence uh, will be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders? Impossible. Not in Jerusalem. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more your, shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down. Nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. This language of, of accomplishment, of it's never going to revert back to the way it was before. This isn't a matter of God sending a good king and they enjoyed so many years of peace. But the people went back to their sin. They turned back to their sin and they went back into oppression and they went back into captivity and God raised up somebody else to bring them out of this gym. It's never going to be like that again in Isaiah chapter 60 at the end. The fulfillment, I'm going to say, has, is yet to be realized. It's still in the future. But we're still talking about Jerusalem there. Figurative or literal, that's what we've got to address. Two more. Mildred. Yes, number one, God is glorified. The Lord is glorified. The number one effect of the Lord accomplishing salvation, the Lord's own arm working salvation, is the Lord is glorified. That's made very clear. Uh, Especially the most important verse in the entire chapter is verse 21. Verse 21 reads, Your people shall all be righteousness, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Number one reason. It's how the chapter starts as well. Arise, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Jerusalem is glorified and exalted. And that glorifies the Lord. It's because the Lord is glorified in accomplishing His salvation that number two happens. It's because the Lord is glorified that He brings salvation to the Jews. It's because the Lord is glorified that He brings salvation to the Gentiles. All salvation is giving glory to God. Because if God doesn't work salvation, we don't have it. There's one last effect that's kind of important in this entire passage. And it's a play... Off Jerusalem, Jerusalem is exalted. Now hone it in. Zoom in a little further. It's not just Jerusalem is exalted. What else is exalted? In particular. Um, that's a good point, but that's not it. Um, it's an ineminent object, object uh, better than the gates. Better than the gates. Jerusalem is all about what? What's the most important thing that was in Jerusalem through all of Israel's history? The temple. The temple. The temple is, you could use the word glorified easily. I think the English standard prefers the word beautified or made beautiful. That's a U. So you've got those five results of the Lord's own arm working salvation. The temple is glorified. If I were to highlight that for just a moment, uh, the New King James at the end of verse 7, rather than the ESV says, I will beautify my beautiful house, the New King James says, I will glorify the house of my glory. God is going to exalt Jerusalem, bring salvation to the Jews, the temple will be exalted, beautified, glorified. Salvation will extend to the Gentiles. Those are the results of Isaiah chapter 60. Um, I'm out of time. What are your thoughts and comments? Man, I wish I could have another hour. <laughs> Number one, for sure, As in Isaiah's prophecy, this is the order. Uh, You want to reverse these two? Yeah. The fact that we made the list is by the grace of God. But in Isaiah chapter 60, the emphasis is more on the temple is beautified. It's beautified by the Gentiles. The Gentiles are helping to beautify the temple. And in doing that, they're proclaiming the gospel, which I've already read in response to what Henry, Henry uh, his point, also in verse 7. In verse 7, it says, uh, speaking of these Gentiles, the second part of verse 7, because I don't want to pronounce that city name again. But uh, the second part of verse 7 says, they shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. That word minister is a word, it's not, there's a couple different words according to the theological word book of the Old Testament. So there's a, a word for menial labor. That kind of work. Then there's a word that's a a higher kind of a work. It's the kind of a work that a, a subject renders a person of authority or a king or nobility or royalty. It's that kind of work. Or it's the kind of work that a priest ministers in the temple and goes up to the altar. It's that kind of work. Gentiles are living like priests. That's pretty shocking. That's part of the result of what God does when he works salvation for himself. He's got Gentiles ministering to him as if they were priests. That's a great salvation. One of the points Don Carson makes, if, I don't know if everybody's familiar with Don Carson, he's, he's kind of uh, in retirement, you know, like he's, uh, he does what he wants, is what it boils down to, up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's like a, a scholar in residence, or I don't know what his title is. Uh, brilliant man, and... And one of the points of emphasis he tries to drive home, which I think is pertinent to what you're saying, Lori, is especially from Romans chapter 11, how Gentiles are grafted in. And, and we're 2,000 years into that. And he, he cautions the Gentiles, in his experience in American or Western culture, we take it for granted we were grafted in. We miss the fact That salvation is of the Jews. And God has a special place, whatever that means about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is special in the Lord's eyes. And his temple is special. And we're grafted in, but the fact that we are there ought to cause great rejoicing, but we ought not to take it for granted. Uh, I'm going to see if anybody else has another comment or question, but one last time, let me take you to, uh, I think it's chapter, Isaiah 49, is that Where it's at? I've got so many things written in my notes. In Isaiah chapter 49. Oh yeah, this is it. It's beautiful. And I I think I made this point when we were there, but it was such a long time ago. Isaiah chapter 49 is another place where Jerusalem is personified as a person. Isaiah 49, verse 14. Well, maybe I'll back up to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, that's Jerusalem, Jerusalem said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord responds, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. That's where we usually stop. But it goes on. Your walls are continually before me. We sing before the throne of God. My name is written on your hands. I think there's truth in that. But in the original context, it's Jerusalem that's engraved on his hands. Not individual believers. Not Gentiles. It's Jerusalem engraved on his hands. Your walls are ever before me. Jerusalem is much more important to to the Lord than what I think Gentiles realize. And Isaiah chapter 60 is a song and a celebration of just how important Jerusalem is. Does anybody else have a thought or comment? Delia. I'm glad you feel attention there, and I'm, I have no satisfying answer for that. And it's because of that, I mean, clearly the temple is glorified and beautified. It's repeated several times. So some people are going to say, it's, the church is the temple. Uh, is it figurative language? Is there really a temple? Then other people, good people, not bad people, good people, people at high view of scripture, they're like, there can be no temple Christ finished his work on the cross. There can be no temple. There can be no sacrifices. Others would say, well, they're not sin sacrifices. They're Thanksgiving sacrifices. They're sacrifices commemorating what God has done. Just like when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're not offering a fresh sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. We're remembering what was finished 2,000 years ago. Is it possible that in whatever this temple is, if it's a future temple yet, it is not meant to take away sin, but it is commemorating how God works salvation for himself. I don't know. I could, I could live Methuselah's age, and I don't think I would get down to the levels where I would be able to answer with confidence and, and be satisfied with my own answer. Uh, it's amazing. Oh my goodness, this is so thorny. Part of the problem in, in Revelation 21, when you've got the New Jerusalem coming down, it makes the point, there's no temple. There's no temple. Delia? If are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? it's kind of as a sanctification. Which is true, but I'm sure, I'm confident, that's not how the Jews would have taken Isaiah's message we'll address some of these concerns next week T- uh, Terry and I got to close we'll talk about <laughs> uh, again it'll be somewhat unsatisfying because like oftentimes any prophecy of scripture until it's fulfilled People do their best to understand it, and we're left a little bit scratching our heads. And then when it's fulfilled, we're like, of course, you know. uh, Oh, the wisdom of God. How could we have missed that? I think there will certainly be a lot of head-slapping. Let me close in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you. I thank you that you worked salvation when none of us were rising to the occasion. We couldn't save ourselves, let alone anybody else but by your goodness and your grace and your power.